according to that data, we are, I believe, one of the 10 fastest B2B SaaS unicorns ever. We achieved that in two years and four months from the founding of the company. This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Martin Mao, CEO and co-founder of Chronosphere, an observability platform that's raised over a quarter billion in funding. Martin, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me on, Brent. Yeah, no problem. So I'd love to kick off here with learning a bit more about the origin story behind the company. Yeah. So myself and my co-founder actually used to run a part of the infrastructure team. Uh, actually, it was the observability team at Uber, the ride-sharing company, for quite a few years before we founded Chronosphere. And while we were at Uber, we would try to help them modernize their infrastructure and adopt a more of a microservices and container-based architecture more than anything else. And in doing so, we realized as the observability team that we need to create new solutions in order to provide the company visibility into the infrastructure, into the applications, and into the business as well. So we ended up building and open sourcing a lot of these technologies. And then fast forward a few years, we realized that the rest of the industry was going through a similar shift to a similar type of architecture. And it just so happens that we had the ideal technology solutions already created in open source for this architecture. So that's really where the idea came from that, hey, we should probably do something with this technology. So myself and my co have left, and now we build observability platform here at Chronosphere on top of a lot of the open source tech that we originally created back at Uber. Got it. And what was it like when you made that jump from Uber? Were you nervous jumping into entrepreneurship or what were your thoughts? Definitely nervous for both my co-founder and I. It was our first experience running a startup. So definitely a new experience for us, for sure. And coming from, you know, you can imagine some fairly well-paid positions in, in tech going into a lot of uncertainty running your own startup. I was definitely a fairly nervous time at the beginning, more than anything else. Yeah, I can imagine that. And what year did you join Uber? So I joined in 2015, in early 2015, and my co-founder joined, I think, late 2014. Wow. So that was a a pretty crazy time to join the company then, I guess. It was, yeah. They were definitely in their their hyper-growth stage of the business, for sure. I think there was rapid international expansion, rapid expansion of the team, for sure. I think, you know, the company was about 2,000 employees, I think, when my co-founder joined, and and within six months, it was 4,000. Within another six months, I'm pretty sure it's 8,000 employees. So the company was growing, the business was growing, and it was pretty crazy. Yeah, I imagine that's crazy. And when did they have their leadership change? Was that 2017? I think it was about 2017 was when Dara joined the company, I believe. Wow. Was that crazy being part of the company at that time? Like, did you notice, you know, from your perspective, a big shift? Yeah, there was definitely a shift for sure, you know, and and you could feel it across the company. I think that perhaps it was a, a necessary shift, you know, it was sort of becoming a more mature company and really getting ready to go public. So perhaps a, a necessary shift from that perspective. But at the same time, I think that I chilled off a lot of the potential interesting projects and new products and new ideas that we were working on before then. So while a necessary shift, I think it also it also sort of scoped down, you know, the possibilities of what the company could really do beyond that point in the future. Yeah. So, you know, both good and bad, I would say, uh, around that time. Got it. That makes sense. And that's a 
it's always good context to have. And now let's switch gears here a bit and talk about what you're building today. So can you share a high level overview of what the company does and some examples of the types of customers that are using your product? Yeah. So it's an observability solution. And, and really what that means is companies use us to provide visibility and gain insights into three areas primarily. The first is their infrastructure. So, you know, generally our products and services run on some infrastructure, whether it's your own data centers or, or your cloud environments. And generally you need visibility into it in the sense of, you know, perhaps how many machines am I operating in? What's the utilization of those machines in terms of CPU and memory and things like that there? So that's the first use case. The second one is we generally produce a lot of applications or backend services in order to fulfill our products and services out there. Um, you can imagine for the developers of these applications and for the folks that operate them, they need to know how they are operating in production. So, you know, how many requests is each service getting, whether we're, we're returning successes or errors or, you know, how long these requests are taking while it's to detect potential issues with the backend services there. And then the third area is actually monitoring the business as well. So, you know, you can imagine perhaps if we would take Uber as an example, knowing the amount of drivers online, knowing the amount of riders online can inform you a lot about what's happening in the business in real time and perhaps lead to real-time decisions there where, you know, you can imagine if there aren't enough drivers online, knowing that could, could perhaps help you run a promotion to get more drivers to a particular part of the city or something like that, that can actually have a pretty direct impact and positive impact on your business as well. So it's really across all three areas, infrastructure, applications, and the business, really providing that data, that visibility, and their insights into all three areas. And generally for us at Chronosphere, the companies we work with are the companies that are adopting this modern architecture that I mentioned earlier, which perhaps is called cloud native architecture, where you're adopting microservices on top of container-based infrastructure. So a lot of companies that are adopting that particular architecture and looking for more insights are generally the companies that we've worked with. And some examples there include a DoorDash or a Robinhood or Zillow are examples of companies that, that use this for all three of those use cases that I mentioned earlier. Got it. Okay, very cool. And in terms of how you sell the product, is this you know a product-led growth approach? Is it a top-down approach? What does that look like? Yeah, it's definitely more of a top-down approach for us. It's not product-led. And you know, one of the main reasons for that is if you think about the technology that we started with, it was really built to handle the workloads of an Uber scale type of company. So you can imagine the technology advantage we have are in terms of scale, uh, reliability, performance, and cost efficiency. And when you look at who cares about these types of things, it's generally perhaps not the end user that cares how expensive this piece of software is or how reliable it is, but generally in a company it would be a centralized organization and somebody in charge of providing these capabilities to the rest of the organization. And that person cares about these properties a lot. So generally, it's more of a top-down sell because we want to sell our product to these particular folks in companies that need to provide observability to everybody else inside that organization. And that generally results in more of a top-down sell than a product-led growth motion more than anything else. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And what about market categories? What's your thinking there? Are you building a new market category, transforming an existing one? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a little bit in between. I guess it's more transforming an existing one. So, you know, if you look, look at the foresters and the gardeners out there, they probably look at the categories right now as they were a few years ago, which was sort of, there's a application performance monitoring category, which is focused on gaining visibility into your applications and their performance. 
And then there's a IT monitoring category, which is more focused on the infrastructure side of things. So the way we look at the market is, is not necessarily creating a new market, but you can imagine we're going after companies that are adopting this new architecture. And in this new architecture, generally, you try to use a single tool for both of those particular use cases. So when we look at our addressable market, it's really the companies that have adopted this new architecture. And as you adopt this new architecture, you sort of slowly start to cannibalize or take away market share from the existing markets and move it over into the new market. So what we're finding is that this this new market of companies that are adopting this architecture is growing extremely fast, but it's not like it's a brand new greenfield market. It's really growing because many companies out there are changing their architecture and hence it's sort of cannibalizing two existing markets out there. Got it. That makes sense. And when it comes to interacting with firms like Gartner, are you actively engaged in trying to shape those conversations and you know, influence what these categories look like? Yeah, we're definitely you know, chatting with firms like Gartner and Forrest all the time. I can imagine there are also, you know, this shift in architecture is happening pretty recently. It's happening pretty quickly. So I think they're also trying to figure this out at the same time as well. So we're definitely in conversations with them to at least inform them what is our point of view, what is our experience has been like, both at Uber, having gone through such a transition before, or working with our customers now and sort of how we see the market evolving. We definitely give them our point of view on that. And I would say in many places, we agree. And perhaps in some places, we don't really see either, either, uh, but that's really up to them, I would say. And to switch gears here a little bit, let's talk about growth. So I believe I read online that you are one of the top 10 fastest growing B2B SaaS unicorns ever. Is that accurate? I believe so. I believe we took the data that we had access to from Pitchfork, I think is where the source of data came from. And according to that data, we are, I believe, one of the, the 10 fastest B2B SaaS unicorns ever. We achieved that in two years and four months from the founding of the company. That's amazing. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. What do you attribute to your success in you know, achieving that in such a short period of time? If you had to you know, maybe boil it down into three you know, actionable takeaways, what would that be? Yeah, top three takeaways for me would probably be you know, starting with the technology that we built at Uber. I think that was a huge advantage. You, know, you can imagine this was a technology we were building for more than four years at the company and it had a real world use case there. So being able to start with that technology and having the technology battle tested on one of the largest and most challenging environments in the world at the time was definitely a big head start. I think in addition to that, we hired a lot of the core team that not only built this technology, but operated it for years as well. So having a really strong core team that was really familiar with the space and with this technology helped a lot at the beginning. On top of that, I think we've hired a ton of great folks as well and built a great culture. And you can imagine sort of great people attract even greater people. So it's been a really great cycle and really great team that we've pieced together there. And, you know, not only were we pretty quick to get to unicorn size, I'm pretty sure we achieved it with, with probably a smaller team than the most companies out there as well. So those two were great. And I think the third one is probably just the tailwind of what's happening in the broader industry. So, you know, you can imagine for, for our target market, we, we need a lot of the industry 
should be adopting this new cloud native architecture. And what we're finding is that the, the industry is adopting at, at a really uh, fast pace. And that's really helping us because it's really growing this sort of available market that we can go after. It's really pushing people to look for new solutions now as opposed to use their existing solutions and really highlighting the need and the differentiator for our particular product. So that sort of tailwind of what's happening in the broader industry is helping us a ton as well. So those are probably the top three things for me. Yeah. And you know, based on that profile you mentioned of customers that you are working with, I would have to imagine a lot of those customers are based in Silicon Valley, but you're not. Do you view that as you know a disadvantage given that you're not based in Silicon Valley? Is that an advantage for you? What are your thoughts there? Great question. We weren't really given much of a choice, I would say. You know, we founded the company three years ago and really we grew pretty rapidly during COVID. And, you know, as a company, like many others that were growing pretty rapidly during COVID, we went remote first more than anything else. So I don't know if we had much of a choice to really try to localize everything to the Bay Area. To your point, a lot of our target customers are in Silicon Valley. However, I must say that, you know, generally most companies around the world, perhaps even all companies around the world, need observability and need monitoring in one way or another there. So it is a product that can sell sort of to, to all markets around the world, which is nice. To your point, the ones that are sort of adopting this architecture are probably starting in the Bay Area more than anything else. We definitely do have a large and focused go-to-market team down there. And we actually also have a, a decent portion of our engineering team is down there as well, just because that's where a lot of the talent is. But yeah, I, I don't know if it's impacted us too much in you know, the last two to three years. You know, most of our interactions with with customers have been over Zoom. I think, you know, we're, we're just as fine doing that over Zoom as anything else. It's nice now that, you know, as we're sort of coming out of a little bit, it's really nice to be able to fly down there and meet people in person for sure. But, you know, over the past three years, I don't know if we could have done much different or if it would have made much difference for us to have folks on the ground in the Bay Area versus not. That makes sense. Now, let's talk about some of the challenges that you faced in the early days, which I guess weren't that long ago for you. But let's you know, maybe zoom in on, say, three challenges. What were the top three challenges that you faced? Yeah, I think just like with most other companies out there, probably just trying to figure out product market fit was probably the hardest, I'm sure it is for a lot of companies out there. And breaking that down, you know, perhaps who is really our ideal customer, as I mentioned, most companies in the world need this type of technology. So it's hard to scope down to what subset of companies out there are really um, best well suited and how do we identify those companies and how do we really go go after them. That was a pretty tough challenge to go and figure out. Being an open core company, it was a constant conversations and discussions around what type of product we're offering in terms of, you know, are we going to provide professional services around the open source technology? Are we going to provide an enterprise version of it and an on-premise product that folks can deploy themselves? Are we going to provide a SaaS product? So, so the type of product and service that, that we're building was a pretty big question for us as well. And that, that was probably a pretty big challenge for us as well. And then the third one is probably just growing the team fast enough to meet the demand. So we were lucky in the sense that there was a lot of demand. And again, this is mostly due to the tailwinds of the industry more than anything else but really trying to sort of keep up with the growth and hire enough team members thus that we can keep up with, with that particular demand uh, while also trying to keep company culture intact as well. You can imagine the certain pace that you're growing, which you know, perhaps it is almost impossible to keep that company culture. And I think that's pretty critical for a company that's 
fairly young and still in its in its early days. And what's the team size today? Uh, we have about 230 today. Okay. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. It's been a lot of fast growth in a very short period of time. Yeah. I, <laughs> I imagine it definitely sounds that way. Let's talk about funding. I know you've had some uh, insane numbers there as well. So you've raised over $250 million since launching the company from some really incredible investors. What do you think has these investors so excited? That's a good question. It's probably a question for them. But if you were to ask me, I think in the early days, I think it was probably the potential of the technology that we had and the, the potential of the team that we had at the beginning. And again, you know, having this piece of technology come as a result of having a much larger team at Uber work on it for, for many years, probably interested a lot of the early investors because, you know, they probably had some faith that the technology could scale, the technology uh, could solve the problem at scale for Uber. And that probably gave them a lot of confidence uh, behind that, at least. Uh, the fact that we were the team that created it and ran it, I think, probably gave a lot of the early investors some guarantees and perhaps was part of the reason why they were so excited. And then I think more recently with some of our recent investors, especially with the last round, I think that's been more on business execution more than anything else, right? So you can imagine as soon as you start making revenue, it was start look at the revenue numbers and the growth numbers there and a lot more focus on how quickly the business is growing and how large our TAM is. So, you know, you can imagine that we're only a little over three years old now. We've only been selling for uh, maybe two and a half years thus far, but the business growth has also been pretty incredible in that time. And I think that business growth and the execution against the opportunity we have in front of us is probably the thing that's been exciting more recent investors as opposed to our early ones. In fact, I'm sure our early ones are, are fairly excited about the business growth as well there. Yeah, it sounds like everyone has to be pretty excited at the rate you're growing. Yeah. And what uh, you outside of growth, what personally excites you about everything that you're doing? You know, you're three years in, you know, what motivates you to get up and you know, want to work so hard every day? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the thing that excites me is that we're really just getting started. You know, I think if you look back at three years, incredibly proud, incredibly happy of everything we've accomplished for sure. It's definitely more than we thought we would accomplish in this very short period of time. But the thing that gets me excited is, you know, right across the company, we're just getting started. So if you look at the go-to-market side, we're barely starting to scratch the surface of the available market to us. And that available market is growing every day. So you can imagine that there's a huge amount of potential that we have not even started to tap into now on the go-to-market side. And that's pretty exciting. On the product side of things, the product as it is today, even though it serves a great purpose, it's just getting started as well. And I'll say that we have pretty big plans and years of roadmap ahead for our observability product. And what's exciting there is we're starting to get into the areas where, you know, not only are we providing things at a greater scale, better performance, better cost efficiency, but we're starting to move the product to a place that allows our end users to do things that they can't do in other products out there. And I think that's pretty exciting on the product front there. And then, you know, as a company, as a team, we're sort of just getting started there as well. We recently did a refresh of our company cultural values, and that was extremely exciting, but we're still in the really early stages of trying to figure out what type of company we're trying to build at the same time. So while we do want business success and you know a great product, we really want to create a great company along the way as well. And again, we're just getting started there. So I think you know that's probably the thing that excites me the most is you know it's been a great three years thus far. We've laid some great foundations for everything, you know, and and, and for something ideally big and special. And we're just about to get started on the rest of that execution and see what we can do there. 
And if we zoom out, let's say, you know, five years into the future, what do you think the company is going to look like? You know, what's the impact of the company going to be overall on the market? Yeah, great question. I mean, if things go well, I think, you know, this market as it's evolving in the observability space will become huge. And if things go well, I think Cryosphere is at the forefront of that, uh, especially as the rest of the industry adopts more of a cloud-native architecture there. I think along with that business success, hopefully, we're building a fantastic team and a fantastic company along the way as well. So five years from now, looking back, hopefully we we're more down that journey. I don't know, we would say we're at the end of that journey, but we're definitely more down the journey and have really a company that we're all pretty proud of and one that is hopefully making a mark in the industry and in the space there more than anything else. Amazing. Well, it's certainly exciting. And unfortunately, I think that's all we're going to have time for today. But before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, probably the best place is our website, which is chronosphere.io. That's probably the best place to follow updates on our products, updates on how the company is evolving. And we also have a great blog there as well for those that are interested to follow along there. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for the time here, Barton, and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Right. Thanks a lot for having me, Brett. Yeah, no problem. Best of luck. Thank you.